morning, church. There we go. Welcome. Good morning. So glad you're here. Glad you're awake now. And uh, glad we can gather in this place uh, to worship together. Man, I really love worship, but let me be honest for a moment. I really love worshiping with you. And man, what a joy it is to gather in this place today and to worship Jesus together. Can you believe we're only one week away from Easter? Uh, seven days away from Resurrection Sunday. And here at Riverside, it's a special day because it's what we call Baptism Sunday. And we're excited about this day. It's a day that, that, that every year we kind of gather and, and we celebrate the fact that death was defeated, that the stone was rolled away, that Jesus walked out of that grave. It's Resurrection Sunday. And it's a day here at Riverside that, that we want to celebrate that in, in so many ways, uh, more than just worship, more than just song, more than just opening the word. But we love it when we're able to witness People have their own Resurrection Sunday. People who have decided to follow Jesus, who are ready to confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life and be baptized into Christ. And I know some of you have been thinking about that. Some of you are kind of on the, on the brink of making that decision. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to, to think about taking that next step in your journey of faith this, this coming Sunday. For a lot of you, it's, it's, uh, it's the next step. It's an important step. It's a significant step, but it really is the next step in your journey of faith. And I know some of you may be thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ready. Uh, I don't know if, if, I, if I know enough. Can I, get, can I tell you a secret? I've been doing this a long time. You'll never know enough. You'll never know it all. You may think I'm not good enough or I don't have it all together yet. Can I tell you a secret? You'll never be good enough. You'll never have it all together. And the good news is you don't have to. Um, what, what happens in this moment is that you get to step into an invitation that Jesus has extended. It's not my invitation. It's not this church's invitation. This is the invitation of Jesus where he says, I'd love for you to come and step into the life that I want to give you. And when you step into these waters, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to wash away your sins and I'm going to, I'm going to help you enter into a new and different life. And it's the resurrection life that Jesus offers and that he promises. And, and this invitation is open to everyone. And I'm excited because I know next Sunday, I know we're going to have at least one baptism. And I'm praying we're going to have a few more. Uh, if, if you're thinking about this and you think, man, I'm ready to, to do that. I'm ready to, to make that confession of faith. I'm ready to, to step into the waters of baptism. Uh, I want to ask you just to let us know because we're, we're making plans for next Sunday. We want to make sure that, that you're a part of that plan. We would love to celebrate that with you. So let us know. You can do that a couple of ways. The easiest way is just to come tell us. Come find me, come find Rhonda, Jason, Grace, and Zach, any of us on staff, find one of our shepherds. Just come tell somebody, text us, call us, whatever you want to do, let us know. And that way we can kind of make plans for Sunday and make it special because it's going to be a special day. If you're watching online or if you decided later this week and you don't know how to get in touch with us, it's real easy. You can go to our website, just click on new here, then baptism. There's a simple little form and it'll just let us know that you're ready, that you're thinking about that. And we'll reach out and we'll get in touch and we'll do whatever we can to help you and to make it happen next Sunday. We're excited about this and I'm praying for you. And I want to ask those of you in the room who, who maybe you've already done this, you've made this decision, you've made this confession of faith and you're a follower of Jesus, would you, would you join me? And praying for those who are thinking about this. Uh, pray for those who are, who, are, who are asking these questions. That God would move in their hearts and lives and help them have the courage to take this next step in their journey of faith. I'm excited about, about Easter Sunday. And, and, and really today before we begin, I want to I ask you to think about this question on this Sunday before Easter Sunday. Here's the question. What would life look like? What would your life look like? What would our lives look like if we really believed that the God 
of the universe is for us. Uh, all throughout this series, we've kind of made this declaration, right, that, that God is for us. This is what we believe. But what would your life look like? What would our lives look like as a church if we believed that this is true, that God really is for us? I think it's an important question to ask before Easter Sunday because it's a question that Jesus himself had to ask and answer before Easter Sunday. And um, speaking of Easter, I have a, another question. Does anybody know why on Easter and only on Easter you, they, they sell these peeps, these little chicken-shaped marshmallows? What, why do they? I, I, I honestly don't know why this is a thing. And I'll tell you something. Before this morning at 8.45 at our first worship, I had never eaten one of these in my entire life. Any of you guys love these things? You eat these things? Anybody? Is this your Easter thing, your go-to? I'm more of a Cadbury egg guy, but these peeps, some of you love these things. And they take, they're cu- I didn't know this till this morning. They're covered in sugar. It makes them really good. But um, it's just a marshmallow. I don't know why it's shaped like a chicken. But speaking of chickens, have any of you, you were wondering where is this going? Some of you, uh, you ever, these things expand. Man. I'm going to need something to drink. Um, Any of you uh, heard the story or the experiment, heard about the experiment that um, Dr. Lawrence Cohen once did? He tells the story in his book, uh, The Opposite of Worry. He he knew that that chickens, uh, when they're afraid, uh, they become paralyzed, immobilized, you know, frozen in fear. You may have have heard this before. We all have this sort of basic, you know, built-in thing, you know, fight, flight, or, or freeze, right? So baby chickens... Uh, if if uh, if they if they notice a hawk is nearby, uh, they'll they'll freeze. They'll become frozen. They'll become immobilized. They they somehow yeah, God put this in their chicken brain, right? Uh, they somehow know instinctively that hawks only eat things that are alive. And so if they see a hawk nearby, they'll simply just freeze and fall over and play dead. So the hawk doesn't see it, or if it does see it, it won't eat it because it thinks it's it's dead. And so Dr. Cohen thought, hey, I want to run a little experiment here. So he, he took a, a baby chicken. And he put it in his hand and he pretended to be a hawk, right? And so he kind of stares at it with his big hawk eyeball. And sure enough, that little baby chicken froze. It just, it just, it just froze. And so he took the baby chicken, the frozen baby chicken, and he, he laid it in a little box. And he wanted to see how long the baby chicken would stay frozen. And it stayed frozen for about a minute. Pretty cool. So he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run the experiment again. This time, though, I'm going to take two baby chickens. And I'm going to freeze them at the same time. And so he put them, you know, one in each hand. He kind of stares at them with his hawk eyes, you know. And sure enough, they both freeze. And he, he sits them down in the box, kind of where they can see each other. And he, he starts his little timer. He wants to see how long they'll stay frozen. And sure enough, they stay frozen longer, about five minutes. Well, he thinks, I want to do this. I want to do it a third time, and I want to do it a little differently. This time he takes a, one of the baby chickens, and he, he, he stares at it, you know, does his thing, freezes it. Becomes immobilized, frozen in fear, paralyzed. He sits it down. Then he takes another chicken that hasn't been frozen. He's just bebopping around. And he sits it in the box beside this chicken. And it starts walking around. And as soon as this chicken sees that the second chicken uh, is up walking around, not afraid of anything at all, he pops up. I mean, he's only frozen for literally just a, a, a few seconds, right? So his conclusion was, is that whenever, whenever a baby chicken is frightened... It, it looks to the second chicken, right? And if it sees that the second chicken 
is unafraid, if it's, if it's up bebopping around like there's nothing to be afraid of, then, then it thinks, oh, that, you know, I, I, I can't see a hawk and that other chicken over there, he must not see hawks. So there must not be anything to be afraid of. It must be safe. And so it pops up and it walks around. But if the, if, the, if the first chicken looks over at the second chicken and sees that it's frozen, it must think, well, I can't see a hawk. But that other chicken, the second chicken, it must see a hawk because it's frozen. So I'm going to say frozen as long as it's frozen. And so they both say frozen, right? And, you know, until one of them decides maybe there's nothing to be afraid of, I'm going to go for it, right? right? You know what's really interesting? Researchers later ran another experiment where they took a, a frozen chicken. Well, that may have been frozen, but it was, you know, they, they stared at it and... That'd be terrible, right? Uh, they, they stared at it until it was frozen in fear, and they placed it in front of a mirror. And, and when that frozen chicken stared at itself in the mirror, it stayed frozen the longest, right? Um, that was gross, sorry. <laughs> Literally, it was not good. Uh, Carol and Janet told you about uh, Christian Works for Children, uh, Blair Baker was here at our first worship this morning. She says she's going to start a ministry called Chicken Works for traumatized chickens. We've had to go through these experiments. She thinks she's on to something. Uh, so in case you're wondering, The Opposite of Worry by Dr. Lawrence Cohen. It's a, it's a book all about parenting and about helping kids with anxiety and fear. Um, really encourage you to read it. But uh, I think Dr. Cohen's insights may help all of us think about what we look to, or maybe more importantly, who we look to whenever we're afraid. Because the reality is, is that there's a lot, there's a lot of things in this world to be afraid of, right? And what I, what I don't want to do today is tell you to not be afraid. That's not the message today. I don't want to tell you that there's nothing to be afraid of, that you have no reason to fear, you have nothing to worry about, because the reality is, is that we live in a world where there's, there's a lot to be afraid of. Chemo is scary. Divorce is scary. Having kids is scary. Raising kids is scary. Looking for a job is scary. Going to the DMV is terrifying. <laughs> Taking that math test, that science test, that's, that's scary. There's a lot to be afraid of. War is scary. Death is scary. Life is scary. There's a lot to be afraid of in the world around us. And what I don't want to do today is minimize your fear or dismiss your fear or belittle your fear or make you think that if you're ever afraid that you're not a good Christian. What, what I'd like to do today is to remind, remind us of this truth, all of us of this truth, that whenever you're afraid, where you look, or again, maybe more importantly, to whom you look, to whom you look, has the power, the ability, it can change your outlook. Whenever we're afraid, where we look or to whom we look has the ability to change our outlook. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's not as if we're never afraid or that we're living this life unafraid. The difference for a lot of us is just that we know where to look. 
And I think that's why Paul wrote this letter to these Christians, these Jesus followers living in the ancient city of Rome some 2,000 years ago. He wanted them to know, he wanted them to understand a truth so powerful, a truth so deep that that if they were able to, to take hold of this truth, grab a hold of this message, that it would change their perspective about everything. If you have your Bible or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, I'd love to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 8. So we're walking through Romans chapter 8 all throughout this series leading up to Easter Sunday next Sunday. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, just a reminder, you can open that up, click on more in the bottom right-hand corner, then click on events, and then that'll take you to a, a, a place where you can click on Riverside. You can follow along in the notes there. But today I want us to start in Romans 8 verse 31. And this This may be one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Romans 8, 31, Paul begins with this question. It's a great question. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Now, I'll admit this is a bit of a strange place to kind of pick up and start reading. So if you're wondering what wonderful things is he talking about, if you haven't been here the last few weeks or maybe you haven't read Romans 8 lately or maybe you've never read it at all, let me just give you a quick recap about what Paul has said just in this one chapter up to this point. Let me tell you the wonderful things that he's talking about. He starts out in Romans 8 verse 1 with with these words that there is no condemnation for those of us who belong to Christ Jesus. And that's really good news. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing. There is no condemnation for those of us who belong to Christ Jesus. Then he says this. He says, the Holy Spirit is for us. And he says that whenever you set your mind on the things that please the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, that leads to a life of life and peace. And then he says this, that your identity in Christ, it changes the direction of your life. One of the things that changes is that because the Holy Spirit is living in you, you now no longer have any obligation to do the things that your sinful nature wants you to do, urges you to do. No, instead you're indebted to the one who gave his life so that you could have the abundant life that Jesus offers. And because of that, because of that, there's hope for us. And our hope has a name and his name is Jesus and hope changes everything. Jesus changes everything. What does it change? Well, well, one of the things that changes, maybe Maybe one of the greatest, I mean, it changes so much, but let's just lean into this one idea, right? One of the things that changes is that now we can know that this is true, that God is intimately aware and actively involved in the details of our lives. And we know that because God prays for us. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. These are the wonderful things that Paul is talking about. He says, what shall we say about all of these wonderful things? Man, this is incredible. What happens when we step into the life that Christ offers? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? And for Paul, this is the overarching point of this entire letter to these Jesus followers living in the ancient city of Rome. He wants them to know that they know that they know that this is true. God is for us. I want to say that again, maybe a little slower, because I want this to sink. I want this truth to sink into your soul. God is for us. God is for us. God is not against us. God is not out to get us. God is not waiting to catch us and punish us in our sin. God is not angry with us. God is not disappointed in us. God is not judging us with a critical eye. God doesn't 
hate you. God doesn't dislike you. God doesn't disapprove of you. God is not sad or mad or upset because of something you did and, and you think you let God down. God is, he's not losing sleep at night over something that you did or didn't do. No, that is not true. I know from time to time you think things like that and you believe things like that. That's what the tempter, the accuser wants you to think, wants you to believe. That's not true. Let me tell you what is true. Paul's already said it, but I'll say it again. God is for you. God is for us. And if God is for us, who could ever be against us? And if you ever forget this truth, if you ever fail to remember, if you ever begin to believe the lies of our enemy, our adversary, our accuser, if you ever need reminding, if you ever need to know that you know that you know that this is true, that if God is for us, who could be against us? Paul wants to give us and give them the reason that you can know that you know that you can know that this is true, that God is for you. Verse 32, he says this. Here's how you know this is true. Since God did not spare even his own son. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? The one thing that God could have withheld from us, God did not withhold from us. I mean, nobody would have blamed God. Nobody would have, would have blamed God if he decided that, that, that he just couldn't go through with it. No one would have thought less of God if he would have sent 10,000 angels to rescue Jesus from the cross. No one would have thought that, that God wasn't good if he decided that the, the price was too high, the cost was too great. It was just too much to ask for him to give his one and only son. But God did not withhold his one and only son from us. And because of that, you can know that this is true. He won't withhold anything from you. Jesus himself said this, and I want you to hear just this one thing that Jesus said. This is so powerful. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said this about our father in heaven. So if you sinful people, and we're all sinful people, if you know, and a lot of you do, all of you do, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? This is how much God, your father in heaven loves you. He didn't withhold his only son from you. Why would he withhold anything in the world from you? He wouldn't. Now let me pause and just say, this is not to say that God is a genie in a bottle. He is not. He's not there to grant your three wishes. This is not a name and claim it gospel. This is not a prosperity gospel. This isn't a pray it and receive it gospel. That's not what this is. This is to say that your God in heaven, he is your father in heaven. And he's a good father. He's the perfect father. And he's going to do exactly what you would want him to do for you if you knew everything that he knew. Because that's how much he loves you, just like any father He's working all things together for your good and for his glory. And even when things don't seem like or feel like they're going your way, remember, God is intimately aware and actively involved in the details of your life. And he's working all things together. You know what for? Ultimately, for your salvation. That's what he's doing. Because of all that, because God is for us, because God did not withhold even his one and only son, Paul says this in verse 33 and 34. So who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Absolutely no one. 
For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Same answer. Absolutely no one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And you want to know what he's doing right there? He is pleading for us. Your accuser cannot accuse you any longer. He has no standing in the courtroom of heaven. And even if he was to appear and and try to accuse you, you know what would happen? You know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to be standing right there beside you, pleading for you, advocating for you. And you know how he does that? He's just going to point. You know what he's pointing to? The cross to remind your accuser and everyone else in the world that this is true. Whatever debt you owe, whatever needs to be paid, it's already been paid in full that happened at the cross. Who dares accuse you? Who dares condemn you? No one can do that. And you know what? Even if it was, even if it was the word of your accuser versus the word of God, Jesus, the one who became the word, the word become flesh. Guess what happens? Guess who gets the last word? God always gets the last word. That's the good word. That's the good news. That's the gospel. God gets the last word. And you know what his word over you is? You need to hear it again. He said it over and over all throughout Romans chapter 8. God's word over you is chosen. God's word over you is free. God's word over you is forgiven. God's word over you is child of God, son of God, daughter of God, heir of God. God's word over you is spirit filled. This is who you are. And just in case you missed it, three times in verse 34, Paul uses these two words for us. Did you hear what he said? He said, Jesus died for us. Jesus was raised for us, and Jesus pleads for us. So if God is for us, who could ever be against us? What if you lived like that was true? What would life look like if you believed the God of the universe is for you? I said at the beginning, what I don't want to do today in any way is is minimize your fear, dismiss your fear, or tell you there's nothing to be afraid of. The reality is there's a lot to be afraid of. The truth is God doesn't want you to live in fear. And in fact, as you read through Scripture, you'll find this message on almost every page of the Bible. You'll see something that says something like, or these exact words, do not be afraid. But let me just tell you, that's not a command. That's a reminder of where to look when you are afraid. And I don't want you to believe even for a moment that the message today is that if you ever experience fear as a follower of Jesus, that you're not a good Christian. That's just simply not true. The reality is, is that sometimes as followers of Jesus, we're going to feel fear and we're going to be afraid. That's, that's just what it means to follow Jesus and to experience life in a broken world but it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. How do I know that? Let me tell you one last story. So Jesus, he's gone to the Mount of Olives to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples are nearby, but in this moment, Jesus is all alone. 
And he knows the cross is around the next corner. And let me tell you, the cross is scary. And in this moment, I believe Jesus was afraid. And I'll tell you why I think that. Jesus is there praying in the garden. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to be beaten within an inch of his life. He he knows he's going to be put through a, a sham of a trial. He knows they're going to push a crown of thorns down on his head. He knows they're going to drive nails in his hands and in his feet. And one of the gospel writers tells us, he kind of pulls back the curtain and he tells us in this moment what happens for Jesus. Jesus is in that garden and he's praying and he says that on his forehead are sweat drops of blood. You know how that happens? That happens when, when you're filled with so much fear, when there's so much stress on your shoulders, that the capillaries in your forehead burst and it, it appears, it looks like sweat drops of blood on your forehead. That's what's happening for Jesus in this moment. But you know what Jesus does in this moment? in a moment where he had to be afraid. Jesus has seen a Roman cross before. He knows what it looks like. He's heard the hammer on the nail. He knows what it sounds like. But you know what Jesus does in the middle of this moment when there's so much to be afraid of? He turns to God. He turns to our Father in heaven and he prays. You remember what he prays? You remember what he prays? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew where to turn when he was overwhelmed with fear. He turned to God. And because Jesus turned to God as he was facing the cross, because he was willing to enter the darkness of the tomb, because God was faithful to raise him the first light of dawn on that Sunday after the darkest Friday the world has ever known, you and I can know that we know that we know that God is faithful and that God is for us. Hey, the reality is there's a lot to be afraid of in this world. The difference for you and for me is that in the middle of our fear as followers of Jesus, whenever we're overwhelmed with anxiety or worry or, or we're afraid, we know, we know where to look. Jesus taught us where to look. And when you turn to God, it changes everything. It changes your perspective, right? When you feel the fear, what, what, what Paul wanted these early Christians living in Rome, people who certainly had much to be afraid of, living in a world filled with all kind of fear and anxiety and war and violence, and the list goes on and on of all they had to be scared of, right? But, but he, he wanted them to know, just like he wanted us to know in this generation, in this place, that whenever you feel the fear, turn to God. See that God is near. When you feel the fear, look and see that God is near. How can you live your life in such a way that you believe that the God of the universe is with you and he is for you? This is how you do it. It happens when you fix your eyes on Jesus every day. And as people who live in a world right now, where there's a lot to be afraid of, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage us to turn to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember, in the middle of your fear, 
It's where you look or who you look to that has the power to change your outlook. Church, let's stand. Chances are that there's someone in your circle, someone in your friend group, someone in your family, someone you're close to that's going through something that's scary right now. Because we live in a world where there's a lot to be afraid of. Um, In the words of Dr. Cohen, there's probably someone that needs you to be the second chicken. And here's the good news is it's not that you're not afraid, right? It's not that I'm not afraid. It's that we know where to look when we are afraid. And because we've fixed our eyes on Jesus and we know where to look in the middle of our fear, here's the good news is now we can point others to that same Jesus and show them, hey, in the middle of your fear, when you're worried, when you're afraid, fix your eyes on Jesus. It has the power to change everything for you. And I wonder sometimes, what if that's exactly what the world needs right now? What if that's what the world needs right now? People, Christian people, Jesus following people who are living in a world where, yeah, there's a lot to be afraid of, but they know where to look. They know where to look in the middle of their fear. And because of that, they're experiencing a different kind of life. Everything has changed for them and in them and around them because they have They have this calm about them in the middle of the anxiety, in the middle of the storm, right? They follow a Jesus who walks on the water in the middle of the storm. And and because of that, because they fixed their eyes on Jesus, they can walk on those same stormy waters and know that no matter how this story unfolds, no matter how it goes, in the end, in the end, God wins. In the end, they believe, church, we believe this truth. If God is for us, say it with me, who can be against us?